Thoth's Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Friends and listeners, welcome to episode number six of season six of the Thoth Hermes podcast. Today is Sunday, May 30th, 2021. My name is Rudolf. I am, as always, your host. Last week was quite extraordinary. As you know, we have released our show with John Michael Greer, and I must say the download figures have really gone through the roof. So I have to thank, of course, uh, John Michael for his extraordinary participation in this podcast. But I have to thank also all of you, all of you who listened to it and all of you who attend those episodes. It's really great. Uh, we had already hit new record participation with Jake Stratton Kent's interview three weeks ago. And now this week, another blast with even more listeners with John Michael Greer. So let's carry on like that. And I do hope we carry on like that because um, of course, John Michael and Jake, they are really celebrities in the world of your cult, but we also want to present to you new talent, new people, and maybe people who support currents that are a bit less known or are not in the center of our attention as occultists. But as occultists, we are all curious people. We have to be, don't we? So I do hope really that you pay just as much attention to other people, to younger people, to lesser known people who I try to present to you here on the podcast, like today, for example, when we do an interview with a really young person with Jack's, uh, uh, Jack Fox Williams, who is a young practicing occultist, but who speaks to us, we will speak about that just in a minute, about language and its power. So, um, thanks again, and thanks for attending the show. This show today also is not only the 87th release, that's something, uh, of the Thoth Hermes podcast with all the little intermediate announcements, etc. But it's the 80th episode that you can actually follow and keep following online. All the other 79 are still online and can be found on most podcast providers, but of course also on our website, the Thos Hermes website, which is thoshermes.com. That's T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com. And it would be lovely if you went there and listened to those who you have not yet heard and you might be interested to discover. And while you're there, why not leaving me a feedback? Feedback is always very welcome and especially at this occasion now of the 80th release that is online, would be nice to get some little message from you either via email info at thoughthermes.com via voicemail which you can find on the website or the contact form that you have there and please go to facebook and twitter and also see our messages there and leave me feedback there 
And another time, I want to thank my friend Ursula, who does social media for now since season six. She is preparing all those announcements, texts and everything that you newsletter subscribers get, you Patreons get. And um, of course, all that you find on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks so much to her for her extraordinary work. And while I speak about newsletter, of course, you can also subscribe to our newsletter on the website. And while we speak about Patreon, well, of course, we keep continuing to ask you for your support. And thanks to all of you who are patrons and who are already supporting us regularly. And a little request to all of you who are not yet patrons, please consider becoming a patron of this show. We need your support if we want to produce that quality content and leave it also ad free because that's really something I would like to continue doing. Um, but please, we need your help with that. And please go and consider pushing that Patreon button on the website or go on to Patreon directly and look for the Thought Hermes podcast. Your help is much, much appreciated. Well, today's episode uh, is all about discovery. I'll tell you a bit more in a minute. And when I discovered Jack Fox Williams, um, while I was reading the New Dawn magazine, actually, and you will hear more about that in the interview. And I was also, when I prepared for the interview, I happened to come across his music. And I wasn't aware that he was also a musician and an excellent one. He is really, and I believe he has a quite an extraordinary voice, not only speaking voice, but also quite an extraordinary singing voice. And um, so I asked him if we could also have some of his music to play here on this show today. You know, we always try to play interesting music around the interview. And of course, it's always exciting when our interview guest can also send us some music that has happened several times already. This time it was a discovery for me also that he is a musician. I didn't know that. And um, I think you're going to enjoy it. We are going to play four pieces today. Actually, the first, the first set of music uh, where we all normally play one piece. I'll play two for you. Two very different ones, a little shorter ones. And um, I think you're really going to enjoy that. Um, our first two pieces that you're going to hear now today are as I said, rather different. The first piece is more instrumental with more background music and a bigger piece, so to speak, and it's called Scream for Me. And the second is a solo piece, a solo and guitar, and there you can really hear that extraordinary voice that Jack Fox Williams has. Well, I believe he has. You judge and you let me know, don't you? And then the second piece that you'll hear now in a row with the first is called All I Have. So prepare for two pieces of music. First, Scream for Me. And after that, All I Have. Both composed, written and sung by Jack Fox Williams. Enjoy.
Well, couldn't my love cut it into pieces? And couldn't my love cut it without feeling? Scream for Me and then All I Have by Jack Fox Williams, who is our guest today on the show on that episode 6 of season 6 of the Thought Hermes podcast. I told you this episode was about discovery and I was reading that uh, New Dawn magazine as I sometimes do and sometimes you find interesting articles there and I came across a title of an article called Magical Words, which of course attracted me. And the subtitle of that article is General Semantics and the Power of Language that was um, published in August 2020. And um, well, I really found that interesting. I'll read you a bit as I do now again from that article in a moment. So I went after uh, the, uh, the author, who is Jack Fox Williams, and I discovered a young gentleman from the UK who is not at all the typical occultist or the typical author of occult books. He studied history, he studied law, he studied philosophy. And um, as the subtitle says, General Semantics and the Power of Language, he has a very academic approach to the question, which I really find fascinating because he is also a practicing occultist. He will tell us more about that. 
So I thought this would be not only an interesting interview, but then also an old, uh, a very interesting sequel to what John Michael Greer had to say last week. Because, of course, when you listen, especially to the part of the interview with John Michael Greer about the King in Orange, about what he has to say on magic in politics, then the power of language is, of course, a very, very important part of that. So I think you are going to enjoy that special sequel, that different approach to things today. I hope so. Let me read you the first two paragraphs of that article to get you into the mood. Words hold incredible power. When used poetically, they can evoke the most primal of passions within us. When used destructively, they can wage war and create conflict. When used imaginatively, they can create fantastic worlds of fantasy. When used persuasively, they can seduce us into the empty promises of commercial advertising. When used benevolently, they can facilitate social, economic and political change. Words can be used to control us, motivate us and inspire us. And yet many of us are unaware of their hidden esoteric power. It could be argued that words have a life of their own. They have a reality independent of our own existence. And as the writer William Burroughs observed, certain words and phrases function in a similar way to a virus. They spread from person to person until they become embedded in our collective consciousness. But only has to look at the countless memes that become viral on the internet to acknowledge their inherently infectious quality. Well, I think that really sounds interesting and I hope you share my interest and are now going to enjoy the interview. We are joining Jack Fox Williams in just a second. Just to remind you that, as always, I will come back to you in about a bit over an hour, half an hour and we will play another piece of music by Jack. So, and now let's join him and enjoy the talk. Here comes the interview. It is a pleasure for me to welcome tonight somebody who I must say almost met by coincidence lately on the internet, Jack Fox Williams. But no, coincidence is really not the right word because about eight or nine months ago in June, I believe it was last year, I read a highly interesting article by Jack on the new dawn magazine which was called magical words and its subtitle says general semantics and the power of language and um well we corresponded a little bit and then we lost a bit track i did took my long spiritual break as i called it <laughs> here on the show and also jack had some other things to do and well it as it turned out last week we got in touch back again he wrote back to me and i thought hmm after the show we had with john michael greer last weekend who of course as an author and as a very knowledgeable and practitioner in the world of magic he speaks a lot about words in that context uh, and it would be a perfect fit if we followed that up with a talk to jack fock williams and well here he is jack hello good evening very nice to have you on thought hermes good evening rudolph it's a pleasure to be here 
And those of you, and I hope all of you do that, who just listened all to the piece of music before we started the show, he has also a wonderful singing voice and you will hear more of that during the show later today. So stay tuned. Jack, um, so uh, you are from what I saw on your little biography that I read, you have studied law, you have studied philosophy and history and um, you kind of specialized in the observation of the language of, of relation between science, language, hermeticism, etc. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but let's start a little bit earlier in your life. Um, what made you interested in those fields and how did those fields like law, hermeticism, philosophy, who seem a bit far apart, how did they come together in your life, in your world? Um, so I became interested in the occult uh, when I was a teenager. When I was about 14 or 15, I read on Alistair Crowley. And Alistair Crowley was a very philosophical thinker. There's a lot of philosophy in his works. Um, you know, he discusses the nature of reality, the nature of language, the nature of consciousness. And so reading his works introduced me to the world of the occult, but it also led me to other areas of interest like philosophy, history, psychology. And so then I, I started reading other books. I, I read uh, The Problems of Philosophy by Bertrand Russell and I became really interested in in philosophy and, and the nature of existence. And you you find that the more you read any kind of you know nonfiction, uh, you realize that all of these fields are somehow interconnected, uh, mm -hmm. that they're, they're they're joined together. Um, and so it's a rabbit hole. you know once you once you start pondering these big questions, um, there's so many routes that you can go down. So I think it should be the aim of any thinker to explore the, as many routes as they possibly can. And uh, you just head off into the unknown and you see where, where it leads you. So you must be a, a rather uh, a curious, not curious, a curious person. I mean that in the sense of you, you like to dis discover things. You like to look into the background of things. That's a kind of character type you must, you must be, aren't you? Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah. Mm. And there's a pleasure in discovering knowledge and through that realizing how much you don't know, how much more there is to find out. Uh, yeah. Mm hmm. Well, you were a very young person. So um, when you started with all that, what was the access to that material at the time? Because um, was it already through the internet then? Or was it was it yet uh, the classical way to go to the bookstore, the library to discover those texts? What, what did you do? Well, it's funny because I, I was buying Alistair Crowley's books when they were quite cheap uh that was in the i don't know early 2000s 
Um, mm. So you could buy an Anster Crowley book off eBay or Amazon for eight or nine quid. These books now cost hundreds of pounds, but yeah, because more people are interested in his works, they've their their prices have increased. But um, yeah, I was just buying. I was just buying off buying them off online booksellers. Um, I bought uh, Magic in Theory and Practice book four. Uh, yeah, things like that. Yeah. Did did you have any family background on that? Did your family was your family interested or at least supportive of that? It's funny because my my mum and dad haven't that they've never expressed much interest in it. But my dad's dad, my granddad, was very interested in the occult and the paranormal. And when I last visited my grand's house, I said, oh, could I, could I have a look at my granddad's book collection? And she went up into the attic and she brought down the books. And uh, yeah, they were all to do with what I was interested in. Uh, astrology, tarot, the Kabbalah. So uh, yeah, maybe that's somehow been passed, passed on to me. I don't know. But, but it's more a spiritual connection rather than somebody put that book in your hands and say, go son and have a look. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. 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 Okay. So then you, you started your studies in law first or in, in, in what, what was your initial, uh, initial uh, study directed to law or philosophy? So I, I did my undergraduate degree in uh, a course called the history of ideas which was a synthesis of history and philosophy. So understanding why certain ideas come about. And then I did my master's degree in law. So I went went in quite a different direction, really. Yeah. yeah. Sounds like it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and in the philosophy part, um, I mean, you write specifically that the hermetic, I call them the hermetic arts, but hermeticism, um, where a special interest of your are a special interest of yours in your in your um, writings in your research. How did mm -hmm. that happen, and why? What what is fascinating for you in that field? In law or, or philosophy? No, in hermeticism. I mean. Oh, in hermeticism. What do I find interesting about that? Yes. Why why do you make it a speciality? I, I'm I'm interested in hermeticism because for me it represents the fringes of understanding if that makes sense it's about testing the parameters of reality and that's always been an interest of mine is exploring those unknown territories uh, that people have been exploring for centuries and they continue to puzzle people to this day um, it's funny, I, I, I obviously went to university and I did my undergraduate degree, uh, but I became quite disillusioned with the higher education system. And because I've always been interested in knowledge, which, you know, you're not taught at school, you're not taught at college, you're not taught at university, you have to actively seek it out. And I, I think it does take a, a, a curious mind to venture out and and seek that knowledge. I'm sure you understand, you know, I'm sure yeah, you have that course. curiosity yeah. yourself. Sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah. 
But um, I mean, there would be many other things to discover out there. Why hermeticism? Why, why that field? That's a really interesting question. Um, I, to be honest with you, I think when you're a teenager, there is something there's something alluring about it. There's something, you know, I, I was interested in Alistair Crowley because he was a a figure of controversy. He was a figure of notoriety. And when you're a teenager and you're rebellious, you're, you are attracted to a figure like that. And when you, Certainly. <clears throat> when you're exposed to his writings, I remember opening up magic and theory and practice. And I felt like, I felt like I was reading a secret book that I shouldn't have been reading. It felt forbidden. It was like eating from the, the tree of knowledge. And it's really exciting when you're, you're consuming that material. Um, you feel like you're, uh, you're, you're uh, reading stuff that you shouldn't be reading. And that was very exhilarating to me as a, as a teenager. Um, but then once you get past that, and you look at it more deeply, um, you realize that hermetic practices are about personal and spiritual development. And that's what I found interesting about it was how I could use it to expand my consciousness and, and yeah, expose myself to alternative ideas. Yeah. So from what you're saying, I do not only assume, but it sounds very much like that you are a practitioner. You're not just a writer on, uh, on the power of language, uh, but you are a practitioner uh, in the field of, well, what, what type of practice do you, do you do? So I do a mixture. Um, I don't necessarily subscribe to the idea that you should only belong to one occult tradition. I understand why people do that and they take a systematic approach. I, I approach it more holistically. So I try and, I try and practice meditation each day. I think that's really important. I think any magical practitioner should practice meditation regularly. Um, but I also practice ceremonial magic. So I try and practice, you know, the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram on a daily basis um, and I try and practice yoga and uh, sigil magic as well. I'm really interested in sigil magic and okay. uh, yeah, very much interested in that. So it's a, it's a blending of things, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't subscribe uh, to a single tradition. And you, and that develops, that changes with time or Is it a set of not a set of practices that you pick from, but stay within the same range? Yeah. So there, there are certain, there are certain practices that I think I, I view as foundational. Mm. They, they are rituals to ground myself. So meditation and, uh, rituals like the lesser banishing ritual, the pentagram, I see those as foundational practices for any, any magician. Um, but things like sigil magic, I will kind of dabble with them. I won't necessarily do them every day, but I will dabble in them when I feel like it, it's necessary. Yeah. Yeah. And you do that all 
in a solitary way or are you also part of a group or, or do you work with others? Uh, that's completely solitary. Um, completely solitary. Yeah, but that, that's not necessarily out of choice. That's more to do with the fact that I'm not, I'm not surrounded by people who are particularly interested in magic. If they were, I, I would be very much interested in group workings. Um, but that's just a case of, of uh, not finding people who, who necessarily share that interest. Yeah. So today you are a, a freelance writer. That's how you define yourself. And uh, but you still are part of um, the academic world, so to speak. That's where you come from. That's where you also partly publish your work, I guess. Um, have you experienced any reluctance or do you sometimes think you need to be careful talking about those things when you are, on the other hand, working with colleague academics? Um, uh, is there any problematic approach from either side? That's a really good question. Um, yeah, I think there is. Um, I haven't faced any you know, backlash personally in my professional life. Uh, but I do think there is the, the, the problem with higher education is that it claims to promote free thought, but that thought um, is delineated within certain parameters of what is acceptable and not acceptable, if that makes sense. Um, so, you know, even, even the idea of academic referencing, you know, supporting your thoughts uh, by referencing previous authors, even that uh, formatting, uh, you know, limits what you can talk about and what you can discuss and mm. the way that your ideas develop. Um, so you're already working with within certain parameters. Um, it, it's, it's interesting because if you look at other countries, uh, like Amsterdam, for example, they have universities that specialize in the occult. There are, there are people who undertake degrees in, in, in the occult. They're, they're but they, they are a, ra a rare case. I mean, I think Göteborg is also like that, but I, I yeah. don't know many more than those two. Yeah. Yeah, they're rare. They are rare. But it, but it shows you that uh, academia can, can uh, it isn't incompatible with these hermetic traditions. Um, I would love to see universities take more of an interest in the occult. Mm. Uh, I think that'd be a a great thing to happen um, but but then when you certain universities without naming any of them would be very reluctant to have um, st even students or at, in any case teachers who would openly say that they are also practitioners what, what do you think about that you mean are there uh, you You mean they're academics that practice, but they they don't come out and say it. They don't come out and say it because they are afraid of doing that because they they think they might get and there are others who have had problems because of that. Yeah, definitely, and I think there there's still a prejudice towards people who practice the occult. I, I still think there's a stereotype around people who who delve into these things. I don't know where that comes from. Is it is it the way that the the mainstream media depicts the occult? Is it 
is it other things i i don't know but there i i i think you know there's been a long history of persecution mm. around people who engage in these practices of course yeah and i don't think that stigma has entirely disappeared people still feel the need to uh keep their interest in the occult secret mm. um so yeah i still think that prejudice is there definitely yeah i'm, I'm sure it is right well let's let's go a bit into the field to actually that brought us together to that into that article mm. magical words as you uh, called it um, and uh, it speaks as i said about the power of language and it starts with the great phrase words hold incredible power yes that that is really true um but maybe before we go into that um semantics is of course a word most of you out there know the word and know approximately what it is but we are talking to someone here who's who who is working with, with definitions of the types of words right so maybe uh, jack if you were kind enough to define for us here how you define semantics or what is the official definition of semantics in in the respect of the article that you wrote yeah sure um, so for me, semantics is the analysis of linguistic systems and how symbols attempt to denote reality, how they attempt to denote and signify phenomena. Mm -hmm. uh, so you're examining how language develops and how it and how we use it on a day-to-day -day basis to try and describe the world around us. And that's a very complex, you know, that's a very complex thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that, that for me is semantics, um, is the study of signs and symbols. Yes. Um, okay, so now let's go into the power of language as you called it then. Um, maybe at first, Give us a bit your view on what what that power of language exactly is. How how you mean that? How do you see the power of language? Not yet related to the occult and to magic, but in in general, so that later on we maybe can then delve into the more occult uh, relationship mm. with the, with language. Yeah. Well, language is is very powerful. It's hypnotic. It it evokes certain emotions within us. You know, if you're, if you're around a very happy person and they're using very positive language that rubs off on you and you feel more positive yourself, if you're around a person that is very negative and they're saying negative things, they're using negative words, that also rubs off on you and you can feel more depressed. And Uh, yeah, words are incredibly powerful. Politicians realize how powerful they are. They use rhetoric in their speeches to manipulate certain demographics. Um, commercial advertising is aware of the power of language. You know, they use emotive slogans to catch the imagination of consumers. So, yeah, language permeates our entire reality and... It uh, holds incredible sway over the way we think and the way we behave and the way that we feel. And 
And every institution in our society is is aware of that. It uses it to its advantage. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When we speak our language here, um, we speak about oral language, so words only. Or mm -hmm. are we also, for example, you mentioned sigils. They can be also called a language. I mean, it's then not uh, an acoustic language, but uh, a, a visual language. Are we s including that type of language in our talk here? Or is that something that you see completely separately? I, I don't see them as entirely separate. Um, in fact, You know, if you look at commercial advertising and the way that they use language, I'd say, you know, Grant Morrison, the, uh, the, the comic book writer, you know, he says that commercial advertising is like sigil magic. You know, mm -hmm. the words they use are designed to influence our subconscious. Um, I, I would say language is any sign or symbol that contains information about the world. And so uh, pictorial or hieroglyphic language, uh, yeah, I, I would say falls into that category as well. Yeah. Yeah. Even NPL in a way falls into that category, right? Definitely. Yeah. 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 For sure. Okay. So, but now um, when that is quite clear when we see it on the forefront for, as you said, advertising, politics, etc. But now when we start speaking about what moves us mostly here, so uh, occultism, probably also mysticism, probably also shamanism, which is, I believe, very strongly in influenced by what you're saying, by that power of language. Can you give us, can we delve a little bit into that? Can you give us Uh, your point of view on that and maybe also examples and see how that leads us. Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, shamans, shamans definitely realize the power of language. It's interesting uh, when you read testimonies of people that have, for example, taken ayahuasca uh, under the guide of a shaman, uh, the shaman guides the trip by using language, you know, how do they, okay, yeah, how do they do that? Can you, can you, can you give examples? Um, well, they will, they will, uh, they will vibrate certain words and certain sounds that they believe have sacred power in order to guide the experience in order to, uh, to uh you know produce a more positive experience so yeah words are incredibly powerful within within shamanism but also religions religions have been aware of the power of language for centuries that's why there are mantras in hinduism mm -hmm. that's why in the bible it says in the beginning was was the word um that's why uh That's why you go to church and you sing hymns. You know, religions have been aware that language can produce transcendental states of awareness for, you know, for as long as time immemorial, really. Yeah. But there we go into a field where we 
go also very strongly beyond the words because um, you said about vibration. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you talked about vibration. Is it where would you see the the limit between the word and the sound that is produced in having that power? Mm. Is there is that the same kind of power? Is the word itself the same kind of power? Then eventually a sound that is produced with it? I mean, I know that's a tricky one, but but I'm sure you have an opinion on that. <clears throat> that that is a really interesting question. That is a question I think about a lot. And I know that it divides occultists. You know, you have occultists that subscribe to a one particular occult tradition let's say the golden dawn or the OTO and they believe that certain words or certain symbols should be used in a particular way. Certain words hold a particular power. Mm -hmm. But then if you look at chaos magic, they say that it's to do with the intention. It doesn't matter about the word. It's about what you believe the meaning of the word is. So that, that question <laughs> is divisive among the, the the occult community. I I think it's somewhere in between the two. I don't think we fully understand how how vibration truly affects consciousness. I think science hasn't truly explored that. It could be the case that there are certain pitches of vibration which affect consciousness in a different way. I, th I think that there needs to be more research into that. So I, I think it's a bit of both. I think it's to do with the intention and what you think the meaning of the word is. But I think it could also be the case that different words affect the brain in different ways. That's just my, that's my theory. I don't know. <laughs> that, that's why you are here. That's why you're here. That's why we're talking to you. So when you practice magic, mm. um, How do you use language and where do you belong? Do you more belong to the to the side who say it's intention that counts or is it more for you the sound of the language that, that counts? For me, it depends what kind of ritualistic work I'm doing. Uh, because like I said, I, I, I switch between different occult traditions. Mm -hmm. If I'm performing the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram where I'm vibrating, uh, you know, the, the, the word, the words of God, then I will, yeah, I believe that those, those words hold sacred power. But if I'm, if I'm, if I'm performing sigil magic for me, that's about the intention. Uh, that's about what the words mean to me. Yeah. So I kind of switch between the two. But as we already heard, and we will hear it again in a minute, um, you are also a musician and you use your voice uh, yeah. for producing sound there. Um, mm. Well, Alistair Crowley, who we had here already tonight, he said mm. it's the science, magic is the science and art mm. of creating change to occur, right? Etc. etc. Everybody knows that phrase, but mm. the science and art. And um, so, when you use language as a as a vocalist as a singer <clears throat> um does it also have that same power or is the power different there that's a good question 
I mean, I mean, it definitely holds power. In fact, when I, you know, if I'm on stage and I'm performing and I'm really losing myself in the music, that that can definitely become a transcendental experience. There's no, there's no question about it. You completely, you completely lose your ego. You're, you're not there. It's like, it's like the music is channeling through you. It's definitely a spiritual experience. But then there are different, for me, there are different states of <clears throat> transcendental awareness. You know, when I'm playing music, I can easily lose myself. It's a loss of ego. But when I'm, there are, there are times when I'm practicing meditation and I, I might be vibrating a, man, a mantra and that's not necessarily, it doesn't feel necessarily like a loss of ego. In fact, it feels like the complete opposite. It's, it's a presence, it's a mindfulness. You feel like you're truly there in the moment. You know, it's a process of individuation rather than a loss of ego. So I, I, I feel like <clears throat> language doesn't all, always produce one transcendental state of awareness. Language can be used to produce different altered states of consciousness. But yeah, music is definitely a gateway to, uh, to that, yeah. Do you think the music, when, when you do music, I can only talk about the music you also write because that's part of you more than if you interpret only, so to speak. Mm. Um, do you think that music that you create and perform has also that power to create change in conformity with your will? Or is, would that be exaggerated? Um, I think it can, yeah, I think it, I think music can be used in that way. Uh, I mean, you only have to look at, if you look at, you know, I mean, you only have to look at the music of the, the 60s to understand how music creates incredible social, cultural and political change. I mean, uh, I mean, you only have to look at like, you know, a Doors performance to, to, to see how, how yeah. powerful music is in a social sense. Um, but I feel like that's not just, that's not just down to the musician. It's also down to the audience and how they're responding to the music. I mean, you, you, you brought up the issue of, of group workings. Well, a music, musical performance is a group working. It's a, it's, it's an exchange. It's an exchange of energy between the musician and the audience. And if the audience aren't engaging in that exchange of energy, then the magical act of music isn't going to be as powerful. Um, so th the more you can engage the audience, uh, and the more present they are, then yeah, the more, the more magical the music becomes definitely. And, and that was the to me, the major damage that the non possibility of live performance during the pandemic has created for not only the arts, but for, for society, because yeah. that communication, that magic wasn't able to take place because one part was not present in the hall. Right? Yes. Yeah. yeah, completely. <clears throat> There's nothing like a live performance. Nothing compares to it. <clears throat> There's a completely different energy when you're in a room with a band or, or, or a musician and you can feel it. It's like there's an electricity in the air. Um, Definitely. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Yeah.
Well, as we just spoke about performers and stage people, well, you know that that is my original business, which I came from, and music and theater and opera, etc. So I think this is the very moment where we should take a break and play another piece of music. But I think it was an important thing to mention in the interview because performing on stage is also a certain very particular form of creating magic. Um, yeah, well, that's my belief. I hope you can follow me on that. Right, so um, let's get back to hear Jack's voice, but singing again. And um, I played for you two very different pieces before the interview. So what I'm going to do now is play one again, which is more a chamber music type. Again, just guitar and his voice. That's now in this break. We're going to hear a piece that is called through it all and where we once again hear just guitar and voice and well after that uh, we go straight away back into the interview as we do always now since this season after the interview it will be the today fourth per, uh, piece of music and that is called let's get high and this one is once again a bit uh, so to speak bigger piece Right? Okay, so for now it is through it all and then we go back to the interview and after the interview we have Let's Get High, all sung, written and performed by Jack Fox Williams. And after, of course, the last piece of music after the interview, I will come back and talk to you a little bit more about next week and the show that's coming up next Sunday. Right, so enjoy now Jack's voice. This cold wind keeps me there This cold wind keeps me bare This cold wind keeps me in your arms This cold wind keeps me safe from harm I will never forget the times that you could have left But you stuck by my side ever And I will never forget all the times you could have left But you stayed there Through it all Through 
right, get, let's get back to your article. We have sweared a bit off, weird a bit off uh, into the music side, but I <laughs> found that fascinating and good. And we just heard another piece of music by you, and it's all clear why we do that. Um, but um, I saw that in your article, and I, th I would like you to say us a bit more about that, um, that you uh, were referencing somebody who is very dear to the occult community, even though he... I don't think he really saw himself part of it, but of course he's like a, he's like a, an idol for many of us, um, Robert Anton Wilson, right? And of course, language and um, what language can create and what language means, and especially the the how should I put it the 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 the, the unclear. The, The accuracy, the missing accuracy in language um, it was something that was fascinating him. So hmm. um, can, can you tell us more about how you see the approach of Robert Anton Wilson to language and to that power of language? Yeah, so yeah, re reading Robert Anton Wilson was a life-changing experience for me. I read Prometheus Rising when I was 18 or 19 years old. And, you know, his books are all about how our, our thoughts and our behavior are, are limited by the linguistic models that we use. And when we're using language, we have to be aware of how limited our understanding of the world is at that particular moment. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. So, you know, let's say I was at work and a colleague made a mistake, I might say that person is an idiot, but I'm, I'm not taking into account that they've made a mistake at that particular time, at that particular place. I'm, I'm taking a snapshot of reality and I'm using that to describe a person as a whole. And Robert Anton Wilson was very against Aristotle's way of thinking that lang the reality can be described in definitive terms. You know, what Robert Anton Wilson says, reality is much more complex and nuanced than that. You know, we have to use language in a more careful and nuanced way. Mm -hmm. And so he, he urges, he urges people to, to become aware of the, the, the subjectivity of their own, linguistic models um and it's it's a really good practice to do you know whenever you say a definitive statement uh like well, i don't know uh that piece of music is rubbish or that piece of art is is crap you know the you, it, it's important to realize that reality is never definitive your your language is only a description of reality. It never constitutes reality itself. So yeah, becoming aware of that was was really, really radical for me. Really radical. And that is also a point where the transformative power of language starts because mm. you might buy that statement, which is only a part of reality. Mm. Um, you might 
influence by using that statement you might influence somewhere else that's what happens all the time today in our newspaper etc 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 and you might influence other people and through that create a new new kind of reality yeah completely yeah and this is how we're not aware of the power of language and how it can actually influence human behavior you know even on a very localized level you know if i if my if my colleague at work make make makes a mistake and i call them an idiot that might that might create a self-fulfilling prophecy where they've been labeled in that way and they they act differently because they see themselves in those definitive terms you know sociologists talk about the self-fulfilling prophecy um the interactionists were very aware of how labeling influences people's behavior so and then like you said even the news is the news uh influences people on on a massive scale i mean we've seen that with the coronavirus how 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 language can create you know international social economic uh, and political change so yeah. yeah it's incredibly powerful and and it it affects human behavior in a very very significant way that you said that about the coronavirus and no guys we're not going to talk about the coronavirus <laughs> um but i have to cite something uh william burroughs who you yourself cited him in your article I and love, he says that william burroughs. He, yes you have to tell us a bit more about william burroughs mm -hmm. after that but he says my general theory since 1921 has been that the word is literally a virus and it has not been recognized as such because it has achieved a state of relatively stable symbiosis with its human host i mean i find that in the context of what we live today an extremely <laughs> uh, interesting and even funny statement. Yeah. Uh, but maybe you can expand a little bit on that also in relation to the occult because i think it has very much uh, a relation to to the field of magic and the occult that what what he's saying there and maybe you just let us know who william boris was and and why you like him and what's your take on that yeah so Will william boris was a very complex character he was a uh, an american author and uh, he you know he published them many famous books junkie the naked lunch uh, nova express and yeah mo most of those books use the cut up technique where you you basically you, you take sentences that are structured and ordered and you cut them up and you piece them together in random in logical ways and you find that sentences take on new meanings because uh, this, the associations are suddenly different so his, his books are really interesting in that way they kind of show that language can be used in in new and interesting ways that we we never thought was possible before so he, he was a very revolutionary writer in that sense and what he says about language being a virus is really important because there are certain phrases and certain slogans and certain rhetoric you know uh rhetoric that it passes on from one person to, to another. It's it's infectious. It's infectious. It functions like a contagion, and uh, 
you know, not not to keep on talking about the coronavirus, but it's interesting that even during this pandemic, there are certain phrases that people have started using automatically. You know, at the end mm-hmm. of every conversation, stay safe. You know, yep. that's a that's a phrase that is passed on from one person to another. And uh, you know, Richard Richard Dawkins, the biologist, he says that uh, language is mimetic. It, it, it functions in the same way as DNA. Ideas and words are in a battle, in a competition for survival. And, you know, the strongest, the strongest ideas survive and they get passed on from person to person and other ones just fade away. I mean, if you look at religion, that's an incredibly infectious idea i mean i i mean people people uh, tend to disregard religion nowadays because you know we've become so, so modernized in the west but that's surely the most powerful idea in the whole of human history it's last lasted thousands of years and religion ultimately at the end of the day is language you know religion is grounded in certain materials and certain texts and they've been passed on from generation to generation um so yeah, it's incredibly incredibly infectious mm-hmm. so uh yeah william burroughs I, I think was uh was incredibly important in in showing how language not only controls us but can be used to liberate us when we we break free from linguistic convention when how did you call the technique uh, when he cuts up phrases and and puts them together in in on different order what, what's that called uh, the cut up technique the cut up technique okay yeah uh, what would in your opinion as a practitioner happen mm-hmm. if you started doing that with uh, classical ceremonial magic um, conjurations, so to speak. <laughs> so if you take the, 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 the pentagram ritual and cut it up and put it together in a new way, what do you think would happen? Do you know what? That's a question I've never thought about before. Um, I mean, either I just made it up because you mentioned yeah, Boros it's a, here. It's a very, yeah, it's a very, I think it could be an interesting <laughs> question. <laughs> yeah, it is a very interesting question. And, you know, it, it could be argued that occult rituals only have power because we have agreed, it's hard to explain, because they, they play into... Um, certain archetypal symbols and ideas that we culturally agree on. But if you cut them up, um, you're reorganizing the whole process. And in a way, are you taking more control over the ritual? You know, perhaps, perhaps that is a subversion of, of culture in itself. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe it would actually have more power if you uh, if you cut it up and you you took control of it like that. It's an interesting. In case, the, in, the intention bit would certainly be stronger mm-hmm. uh, as in regards to the, the classical part. Um, yeah. W- w- which which brings me to another 
question regarding language and magic. Um, what is often very tricky, uh, I don't know if you speak, uh, if you speak foreign languages yourself, but um, um, well, I am based, as you know, and as one can hear in the German speaking world, and but I read most of my books about the occult and magic in English, of course, I do this podcast in English, and I do most of my ritual work in English. Now, um, how would it change when you change languages? How would a ritual or a magical practice change because you use a different language, which might not even be your native language, your mother tongue, so to speak? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't really speak any other languages, uh, but I, I have a, a very basic understanding of Hebrew. I, I use the Hebrew language when I'm, when I'm performing certain ceremonial rituals. Mm -hmm. um, when I'm performing the Lesser Banishing Ritual of the Pentagram, I will vibrate the names of God in their Hebrew form. Mm -hmm. um, and I do think there's a purpose to that because Hebrew language is gendered, you know, We, we think of the Judeo-Christian God as male, as patriarchal. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. when you look at the Hebrew language, uh, there are many names for God and they are gendered. They are both male and female. And so in the Lesser Banishing Ritual of the Pentagram, you are invoking both the male and the female sides of God. And so... I actually choose to use Hebrew for that particular reason because mm -hmm. it, it enables you to become aware of that duality between male and female by using a, a gendered language. Um, mm -hmm. So even just that example shows that different languages can can be used in, in different ways. Yeah, definitely. Yes, certainly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a question almost as psychoanalytics needed to answer because, because of course, when you follow somebody like Freud, then the way you use a word is very important to your subconscious. And of course, magic work with the subconscious and the unconscious. And, and mm. uh, the question is, if, if, you, if you create the same, let's call it effect or produce the same result when you use a different language, which might even create different reactions in your brain, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah completely. You were speaking about uh, examples like Burroughs, like uh, Robert Anton Wilson or others. Most of them were, if not contemporary, but 20th century examples, right? Mm. But your studies also involve history, right? And, mm. um, hermeticism, has originated, well, let's say in the Renaissance, 15th, 16th century or even earlier, but at least that was a very strong historical period mm. uh, in regards to that. Um, would you be able to give us some examples uh, or putting the power of language in context with historical periods, with those periods, maybe even more ancient, but do we have examples of how that power of language was not only used, but how they were aware of it and how they made, may have commented even on it? Do you know any of, of those? Um, I mean, when was, uh, 
I, I don't know the specific dates, but when was, you might know this, when was Henry, is his name Henry Agrippa? Agrippa? Uh, Agrippa, Henry Agrippa, yeah, well, that was about 16th century as well. Mm. 16th century. Mm. I mean, around that time, you start seeing a resurgence of interest in alchemy, in astrology, in grimoires, and yeah, scholars like Henry Agrippa were definitely becoming aware of the power of, of, of language in, in occult mm-hmm. ritual. Um, in fact, in his occult philosophy books, he talks about uh, the power of words and and uh, how they can be used in, in ritual. Uh, so that that's one example of an author during that particular time period. Mm-hmm. Um, that was aware of the power of language in in a esoteric context. Um, yeah, I can't I can't think of them anymore actually. Yeah, I, I I can't either. I just thought because you're the specialist, you might have uh, uh, a few more thoughts on that. Anyway, I I have read oh, and yes. Go I ahead. just think I was just thinking actually, John D. You know the. Uh, hmm. Oh, yes, the, uh, of course. The Enochian language, you mean? The Enochian language. Mm. I mean, that's a very interesting magical phenomena. I mean, <clears throat> that's an in, it could be argued that that was an entirely new linguistic model. And he actually, you know, he said that that was given to him by, by angels. You could see those angels as a projection of the unconscious mind. Um, but that is an incredible, I mean, anyone who has studied Enochian magic knows how complex that esoteric framework is. There are so, it's a bit like Kabbalistic language. There are so many interconnected meanings. It really does appear supernatural. Um, and so I would argue John Dee was also very aware of the power of language insofar that he actually created an, an entirely new linguistic model, which which magicians are still using to this day. Um, yeah. So yeah. yeah, during during the Victorian period, you see a resurgence in in that particular interest. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And to a certain extent, maybe that's a bit far uh, far reach, but um, even the the Babylonian. Um, I don't know the English uh, term for that, but when 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 the Tower of Babel fell down and and the languages were created, so to speak, mm. something happened there that the power of language got kind of split up yes. uh, be- between different languages, at least as a symbol, of course. Uh, yes, thought. exactly. And it's interesting because William Burroughs, to go back to him, he was fascinated by hieroglyphic language. He was obsessed with Egyptian culture mm-hmm. and... He, be- he believed there was something special about hieroglyphics because they they impact your nervous system in a very immediate way. Mm-hmm. It's pictorial. And so you know exactly what it's representing. The language we use is entirely abstract. It's conceptual. It's cerebral. A hieroglyph has an immediate impact on your sensory experience. <clears throat> and also that, that makes it more universal. You know, and more tangible also, maybe. And more tangible. And yeah. so I think that plays into what you're talking about insofar that perhaps ancient civilizations 
we're using languages that uh, crossed uh, cultural boundaries. They were much more universal. And um, actually, I think I think there's a similarity between Egyptian hieroglyphs and internet memes insofar that they're pictorial, they're representational, and they're used by people across the world. It doesn't matter whether whether you're in China or you're in England or America, you can use these emojis and everyone understands them. They are essentially hieroglyphic. Mm. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, the meme theory is something very interesting, but maybe that goes a bit too far away from our subject here, but it's something we <laughs> talk about one day. Um, I also read, well, let's go back to, to Jack Fox, Jack Fox Williams and his, his future plans, because I read, well, it was back in June, but I, I guess this is still on, that you were currently working on a book about the relationship between the history of science and the occult. So is that still on your, on your, on your work desk? <laughs> um, yeah, so I started researching that after I wrote uh, an article uh, on Uh, scientists, particularly Isaac Newton, uh, and how they were involved in occult practice. Uh, so I became very interested in that topic and started writing a book about it. Um, I've kind of got distracted from that because I'm, I'm obviously working my PhD, so I don't have a huge amount of time to work on it. Um, but I would like to write a book where I explore the lives of different scientists and and their connection with the occult, particularly Isaac Newton, <clears throat> because I'm very interested in existentialism and how people's actions are connected to their beliefs. And I find it very interesting that these scientific figures uh, are associated with rational materialism, but actually when you look at their lies, when you look at their auto autobiographies you find that they they were very irrational people you know isaac newton mm. was was interested in alchemy he was interested in numerology and hidden meanings in the bible he in fact he predicted the you know an apocalypse would come based on his reading of the bible so actually when you look at these the lives of these scientific figures uh you you find that the line between science and mysticism is is very blurred so um, yeah, I, I, I'm currently working on a book about that. And I, the idea mm. is to look at the lives of different scientists throughout history yeah. and, do and document their interest in the occult. Yeah. Would you also, would you want to name a few more of those, of those people that you will include in the book or is it too early to do that? It's probably a little bit too early to do that. Um, I, I think I'm probably going to look at Nicholas, Te uh, Nicholas Tesla as well. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yeah, because uh, <clears throat> he, he was a very, very fascinating guy. Um, mm -hmm. Certainly was, yeah. Who, who was on the fringes of the scientific community and often isn't credited for, you know, the the many inventions that uh, he made, benefit, that need benefit well, yeah. us today. And uh, you know, he was very interested in in electromagnetism and energy and the potential to harness. Uh, electromagnetic fields and uh, yeah he, he was he was also interested in, the mis in mysticism and the occult so I think it'd be interesting to look at his life as well and Jack Parsons of course is somebody who Jack comes Parsons. to mind immediately definitely right? yes yeah. completely yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. So w- what's your personal take on the question? I mean, here we are talking about historical figures, but um, do you, as a practicing occultist, uh, as a historian, do you see that relationship between science practical science and I'm not only talking about the ancient, the old, uh, uh, olden times, right? But, but mm. science, even now, when we talk about quantum physics, etc., cetera, mm. you see a relationship between science and the occult that should be explored, that should be used, that should be expanded. Yeah, completely. And I think that's a connection that should be looked at from a historical point of view. I, I think we should be looking at ancient civilizations and how their their mystical beliefs played into their scientific understandings of the world. I mean, if you look at ancient Babylonian civilization, mm. um, they were actually very scientifically advanced. Um, I don't think historians give... Uh, Babylonian civilization enough credit for how much they understood about the world. I mean, mm. they had quite a profound understanding of planets and stars and and things like that. But but that was tied into their their belief system and their mythology and their esoteric view of the world. So I think it should be looked at from a historical view like that. You know, I think. And then when you look at alchemy, you know, alchemy was a precursor to modern chemistry. Um, many alchemists during, you know, during the 15th, 16th century were, they were experimenting with different chemicals. They were inventing new compounds. They were interested in the chemical properties of life. Um, but they, They were also interested in the more esoteric sides of mm-hmm. of chemistry, and uh, and and I think that that that's also a valid way of looking at it. But as you say, modern science is now proving what mysticism has known for centuries. I mean, uh, you know, quantum physics is now demonstrating that consciousness and reality are fundamentally entwined. You know, if you look at experiments like a double slit experiment, you 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 find that the observer is central to the outcome of the scientific experiment. And here um, we are in chaos magic again. The intention counts, right? Yes, exactly. Mm. Yeah, it's how you're approaching the experiment. Um, it depends on the instruments you're using, the 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 way you're measuring it, your results. You know, so science. Science is a fantastic tool, but it's quantum physics actually shows that it, it's it's not actually as objective as it proposes to be. You know, it depends on the instruments that you are using to measure measure your results and how the observer is is playing a role in the in the experiment, which is which is essentially magical. That's that's what the occult yeah. is about. Yeah. Certainly is. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Well, we're coming a bit towards the end of our talk, uh, I'm afraid. Um, but um, I, I, would, I would like to ask you a very blunt questions to finish. <laughs> um, after all we have said today and all we have, we have made a kind of a, a very quick tour of many fields. But yeah. um, <laughs> 
my final question to you is, and take your time as much as you want to answer that, yeah. but is language magic? Is language magic? E yes. Yeah. 100%. Mm. 100%. Because magic is about, you know, I think Crowley perfectly summed it up when he said that magic is about creating change in accordance with the will. And if you, if you take that definition as true, uh, language has the power to create change in reality in accordance with your belief system. Mm. You know, we've, um, you know, as I, as I said before, politicians use language to target voters, commercial advertising, inf you know, influences our purchasing decisions. Language is always being used to create change in reality in, in accordance, not only in with, with our will, our personal will, but our collective will as a society as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And Important point. It's not only, not only the individual, but his collective as well. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, we're engaging in, in magic all the time, every day, every time you see an advertising slogan and it, 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 you know, makes us purchase a certain product or we turn on our television and our, and the news, Uh, influences how we feel in the world you know this is language in action this is language creating a change in reality it's impacting human behavior um, but what lang what magic is ultimately about is well for me at least is about taking assuming agency in the world it's about realizing that we're not victims to these, these structures, these linguistic models, which control our thoughts and our behavior, mm -hmm. we can take control of them. We can change them. We can modify them. We can alter them. And that, that's what, that's what Burroughs cut, cut up technique was about. It's about, it's about taking control of language and, and, uh, using it to assert more autonomy in the world. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Yeah, I, I would say language is definitely magic. I, I agree with you and thank you for your answer. And once again, the cut up method, I wasn't aware that it was Burroughs who, who I, I knew the technique, but I wasn't aware that it were, came from him originally. And I think he was a perfect example. Also what he brought up at the end of how you can create things from something that seems at first sight very structured do you write the words for mm. your music yourself or is it texts that you take from others and make uh, and, and and create the, the 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 music is the lyrics also from by jack fox williams yeah yeah i write i wrote all the lyrics yeah okay so uh yeah i mean I, i'm obviously 
I'm obviously influenced by other artists, but yeah, I, I write the lyrics. I write the lyrics myself. Yeah. Very good. So we will now hear the power of language created by Jack Fox Willem himself in that third <laughs> piece of music we're going to hear now after this interview. Jack, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for being with us here today. It was a very interesting talk, a bit different from others we had here, but I think really fascinating. Thank you for that. And um, well, good luck with all your projects. Thank you so much, Rudolf. Honestly, it's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you for Thank having you. me. Bye now. See ya.
Get High by Jack Fox Williams. Yes, well, I hope you liked the discovery that I made you make today in all terms. I think it was discovery to hear that young gentleman speak. I think it was discovery to hear him sing. And also the subject as the power of language is something that is very close to our minds somehow, but then we often forget about it, but we don't take it maybe seriously enough, at least in my opinion, as a practicing occultist. And well, maybe some thoughts, especially those of Robert Anton Wilson and William Burroughs also, which he added, should help us to be a bit more aware of that power and also how the language can be and often is abused for power. Right. Well, thank you for listening. Thank you for being here with me today, with us today, and listening to the Thought Hermes podcast once again. I'll be back with a new interview, of course, in a week from now. We have turned weekly again, and it's great to have you. And um, next week, my guest will be, well, she calls herself the Witch of Pennsylvania, Sarah Mastros. Sarah, who is going to talk to us about her approach to witchcraft, which is a very particular one. She has a very special background and very special thoughts on that. So I hope you will be joining me for next week's interview. Uh, the interview will come out on Sunday at three, as always. But for today, I thank you once again for being with me. Have a good week and take care. Stay tuned. Hear you soon.